0: You know, you could look at me now and you would never think that that this is my background because, you know, I speak posh, I live a pretty good life. You'd think that I would be from a, a place of privilege, but I'm not. I'm a really great example that it's all down to mindset. That is the starting point to actually know that it's within your gift to train your mind
1: in terms of what you want to do. That's Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, MBE, the founder and CEO of The Black Farmer, a food, clothing and wellness brand, but it's mostly about the food. He dreamt of owning a farm as a child, but having grown up in poverty in Birmingham as a black man, he had to excel at several different career stages to give himself the chance of building his company. I think you're going to like hearing his story about starting the Black Farmer, a name coined by neighbours of his farm in Devon. His drive to change his circumstances was relentless. Now, Wilfred gave Gordon Ramsay his big break in television, having been given his own break in TV thanks to raw persistence. And one of his key pieces of advice, which has stuck with me, is to find your guardian angels. What a great idea. We should all have guardian angels. He's written a book called Jeopardy, The Dangers of Playing It Safe, so has really thought about the things that have made him successful. And that, after all, is the stuff we want to know about. And I loved this interview. He's got unique perspectives. His energy is uh, something else, as you're going to hear, and he's really into honing your mindset, which regular listeners will know is something I'm pretty keen on too. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Surter. Part of the Windrush generation, Wilfred was born in Jamaica and came to the UK with his parents when he was young.
0: We lived in a place called Small Heath in Birmingham. So most of the immigrants went to the large towns. The part of Birmingham that I was brought up in is one of those classic inner city areas, really. Devoid of hope, devoid of opportunity there were people from the Caribbean, there were Irish, um, there were Pakistani, Indian, we're all in in this um, community, and we were very, very poor. I'm from a family of 11, and the 11 of us lived in one of those two-up, two-down terrace houses, so it was very cramped, as you could uh, imagine. I can remember my mother trying to feed all 11 of us with one chicken, And it ain't those sort of nice tender chickens you can now get from the likes of Tesco's and and Sainsbury's. They're very much, you know, the old um, broiler hens, which you had to then actually spend days to try and sort of tenderize. Now, as a way of supplementing the, the family income, my father had an allotment. And it was my responsibility as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And this allotment really became my sanctuary away from the misery of living in Small Heath in Birmingham. And in a sense, this is where my story starts. I remember like loving being on this allotment that I made myself a promise at the age of 11 that one day I would like to own my own farm. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but it was a dream that I had lodged into the back of my mind, and then everything that I subsequently did um, in my life was to try and get into a position to buy this farm.
1: Achieving that dream was unbelievably difficult.
0: I went to the local secondary modern school in Birmingham, and this school, which is much of a shithole as a place that I was brought up in, the kids hated being there, the teachers hated being there, They didn't really educate us, they policed us because they didn't really expect we would achieve much in our lives. And truth be known, that most people that I went to school with did end up in prison, you know. And to make matters even worse, I'm dyslexic. Dyslexia has now become very, very fashionable. Everybody's now wanting to demonstrate they've got some form of dyslexia because it's now seen to be a gift, which it is. But back in the day, most people just thought, actually, how could somebody not understand the basics? I mean, it was seen to be a a, a bit of a scourge.
1: Yeah, it's quite common in entrepreneurship, isn't it? It's interesting. It feels to be a superpower in entrepreneurship, but a bit of a a challenge, particularly if you're in an authoritarian-led system, a.k.a. my boss, you know, all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, what it is, you see, uh, it's that if you are dyslexic, in order to function, you have to think outside the box. And so you're training your mind to think differently. Because the thing about the educational system, as far as I'm concerned, it actually teaches people to operate within the parameters of how you gather in information and then how you let out that information. It's a ve- there are very strict rules which are based on data, evidence, all those basics for to determine whether you're educated. When you're entrepreneurial, you do not actually operate by those rules. You don't, you do not, and if you try and operate by those rules, and I think one of the things I find with a lot of people who are starting their own business. They fail very spectacularly because actually what they're trying to do is use the rules of, say, a corporate structure in order to set up a company. If you Because you've worked in a corporate structure and they've got all these systems, um, they think that's what you need to implement when you're starting your own company and you fail. And you fail spectacularly because the biggest lesson you learn when you're an entrepreneur, it's a street fight. And there are totally different rules when it's a street fight to when there are gentleman rules, basically.
1: Absolutely. You know, the startup way is very much uh, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And that is the inverse of corporate life.
0: That's exactly our mantra in the company is that never ask for permission, but ask for forgiveness. And yeah, so back to my story. So because, you know, I didn't have an education, the only option available to me in order to get away from home was to join the army. So I joined the army, not because I particularly had any interest in it, because there was nothing else to do. Now, if you're a black guy with an attitude, In those days, and it probably still is the case today, there's one or two things that's going to happen. You're either going to shut the fuck up and do as you're told, or you're going to get your head kicked in. And so you can imagine what happened to me, basically. You know, they tried for a year to try and um, discipline me. They couldn't. And so I end up getting kicked out of the army. So the only qualification that I have to my name is a dishonorable discharge from the army. So I'm 18 years old. I'm kicked out of the army. And everything that you would predict would happen to somebody like me from my background, I seem to be on the course of failure. And what was quite interesting is that in those days, if you were a failure at everything, the only option available to you was catering. So I went to the local catering college in the West Midlands. And luckily, I liked it because, I mean, there's a lot of pressure, um, it's quite physical, and you've got to, you know, you've got to move fast, so I liked it. And I can remember thinking to myself, well, you know, you're managing to put food on the table by being a, a, a chef, but if you're ever going to be honest and true to that dream of one day owning your own farm, you're not going to do that flipping burgers, because one of the challenges is that if you're an immigrant, the chances of you owning land in the UK is almost impossible. And the reason why that is, is that most farmers don't actually have to go out and buy land. It's passed down through the generations. And so um, going into farming, if you don't have the advantage of it being passed down through the generations, it's a rich man's business. You've got to earn a lot of money in order to buy land. So I knew that actually, if I wanted to get my own farm, I was never going to do that um, flipping burgers. And at the time, um, there used to be a fantastic BBC um, series on called 40 Minutes that I used to love. And I can remember thinking, I love that programme so much. You know what? I'm gonna get a job as a producer director making TV programmes. So you can imagine all of my family and friends, like this guy's fucking nuts basically because ATV is very much a profession for the Oxbridge types. You know, you have to have a good education. It's just totally impossible. But I believe, and I've always believed this, and I think I got this from my father, I believe that anyone could achieve anything that they like in life. And any successful person that you'll ever meet, they'll have these two things. Two things, doesn't matter on their education, it doesn't matter on their gender, doesn't matter on their color of their skin, doesn't matter where they're from, any successful person you will meet will have these two things. The first thing, is that you need to be ruthlessly, ruthlessly, ruthlessly focused. And what I mean by that is that you're able to get rid of all of the white noise of living. When most people look at their lives, it's full of shite, really. It's full of things that really do not matter. And unfortunately, the only time people realise that is when they're either on death's door or when they're very, very ill. And then they suddenly realise that a lot of stuff they're worried about didn't Sorry, really matter. I can't help you with that. And this is what happens when Siri comes in, when she shouldn't be coming in. Sorry about that.
1: How do you know that Siri can't help you with that? She might literally have had the answer for you. She's literally sitting there telling you, Wilfred, moment for you, this is the shit you need to cut out your voice and, and, and you're, you're arguing well, with I'll her. Well, i tell you
0: what, I've got things to say about bloody computers and I am AI in a minute as well. You know, they're sort of, you don't want to allow them to take over too much of your lives. But here, yeah, back to the point is that you need to be ruthlessly focused, absolutely focused. Don't don't even let fucking Siri distract you. Just absolutely focus into the point that you you want to do. That's the first thing. And the second thing, and this is far, far more important than the first, is that you need to have passion. Now, the reason why passion is really important is passion defies logic. Passion defies reason, it doesn't make sense. And people say to me, well, what the hell do you mean by passion? And I says, look, have you ever seen somebody when they're in love? They do fucking crazy things. They do things that you, you admire, you just think, my God, these are things that they were logical and rational about it, they wouldn't do. Have the courage to go for it. And don't wait for the evidence to tell you whether it's the right thing to do. Just go with it. So to be successful, it's about focus and passion. So taking those ideals, I thought, well, I want to go into the BBC. And if I believe in those principles, I'm going to go in. And I did all the classic stuff like writing to um, human resources. None of them would write back to me. None of them would take my phone calls. And this is, again, where thinking outside the box really becomes and very useful because a lot of people, they try standard stuff. If it doesn't work, they then give up. That's not the way you got to think about where are the back doors? Where are the ways, other things I could do to try and make this dream come true? And in this case, um, BBC Pebble Mill at the time, I was living in Birmingham and they had these massive studios. And um, I got friendly with the security guards that would be letting people in and out of the building. So people that would be regarded as of the lowest of the low. And these security guards used to hate getting out of their wooden huts to let people in and out of the building. So they then said, look, I could come and help them. So I spent months you know, opening these manual barriers, letting people in and out of the buildings, got very, very friendly with them. From there, they introduced me to the cleaners who were then going to clean the offices. So I then asked the cleaners whether I could come and clean the offices, and I cleaned the offices with them. And then this happened. I met a guy, a very, very senior guy at the BBC. His name was Jock Gallagher. And I'm saying, look, I want to get into television. And so he said, look, come to his office. And he spoke to me for about an hour. And he says, look, you're not the type of person that we employ in television because you don't have the education and you've got a bit of an attitude problem. But he said, look, this is something he said he might think he might live to regret. But, you know, what he would do is give me a job as a runner for three months And then to see um, what happens. Now, that man, having the courage to give me that break, then started off a long career in television. So I gave Gordon Ramsay his first break in television. James Martin, any big chef, it was my job to break them in. Because these chefs were pretty tough guys. And the Oxbridge types were intimidated by them. Because these chefs would take you outside to sort a problem out. And my boss at the time knew I was the sort of person that would oblige, basically, because, you know, I was not constrained with all the sort of things that you can and you can't do. So I spent 15 years traveling the world making programs about food and drink. And it's worth pausing here, actually, because, you know, that from where I'm from, you know, society's dustbin heap. You're at the BBC. The thing to do is shut the fuck up. Don't piss people off and be grateful for the fact that you're there. And if you play it right, you know, the BBC is still going, you could sort of end up with a career there. But the, what, the other thing I always say to people is this, is that uh, the moment you become comfortable, that is the moment of greatest danger. Uh, if you think that you've got a job for life or the moment you get in survival mode, that is the moment of great danger. Because what will happen, world and things change will happen and it will pass you by and therefore the only thing that will keep you on course is your own personal purpose when I interview people for a job I'm always saying to them, I'm not really interested in giving somebody a job I'm interested in giving you something that's going to help you fulfill your personal purpose this is an aid for something that you personally want which is a real mind fuck for a lot of people because they just think well I get a job I do a job and then at the weekends, I then have my, my, uh, my own, you know, that's when I'm, I'm free. I don't work on the basis of that. Everything you do in life should be there to help your own personal purpose.
1: If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2, you're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner, Vanta, comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit-ready in weeks instead of months, and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. The promise that Wilfred made to himself when he was 11 to buy a farm has driven him throughout his life. But that wasn't the only effect the allotment had on him.
0: It was an environment that allowed me the space to breathe and think and dream. Um, On my father's allotment, I was growing vegetables, you know, there were times in the bloody winter when I had to go and uh, pick bloody Brussels sprouts with my fingers freezing, I hated that. But what I liked was the sense that all of the pressures that you get from life, whether that's your community, your neighborhood, uh, when I was under allotment, I was free of that and therefore I was able to then dream and dream big rather than being bombarded by other people's thoughts and other people's ideas of what I could and I couldn't um, do. So it gave me the space to be audacious. Now it may seem very simple what I've just said then, but you know if, if this was an American, audience, they really understand um, the audacity of being bold to think you could be something much greater than the environment um, that um, you're brought up in.
1: And to have an idea and to manifest it and to go after it properly, right, that's very much American dream type language, which is sort of lost over here.
0: It's, yeah, it's very, very, very much part of our about, uh, part of the American culture. Being British and because we have a class system as, as, as such, it's very much about people want, need, feeling they belong to a certain um, part of society and that they shouldn't sort of go above their, their station in life. But I say to anyone, I, I absolutely believe that anyone really does have the ability to be entrepreneurial, but you have to have um, the courage to be audacious and, and be bold. And I think that what a lot of people will find in their lives is that um, they, they don't find that space where actually they could try and connect with their authentic self. Their life is just one big performance of trying to keep other people happy, trying to um, see how other people um, um, react to them. Their, Their lives is one big performance that they don't really get to the core of who they are. And in a sense, you can't really achieve anything in life until you go through that process of saying, well, this is who I am. And once you do that, you'll find there's a lot about who you are that a lot of people won't like that will not fit in. To um, the, the the environment or the circumstances that you find yourself in, and therefore you're going to have to make a decision about whether you want to compromise in order to belong. This is one of the things I talk about in my book. To belong or to be, to be your authentic self, you have to have the courage to break away. And also, you know, the people you're breaking away from are going to want to see you fail. And therefore you need to provide an environment where you could find yourself. Who, who are you really, rather than the performance. Everybody's lives generally is one big performance. It's very, people have very, very little time in their lives when they could connect with who they are. And even a lot of people don't do that because they may not like that, or they don't know how to do that. But that's a really uh, important exercise, especially if you're gonna be an entrepreneur, because all the time you will be on your own. You'll be on your own with your fears and all of those things that you need to be at one with and deal with because there's nowhere else to go but with you and your soul.
1: Yeah, and I think also in in an age of social media as well, it's worth saying that generally speaking, what I've observed in my life is the people above you um, in your journey, the people that you aspire to and never the ones commenting and putting you down. When you try to achieve something, when you try to do something new, when you try to do something great, when you put your head above the parapet, it's only people that are jealous of you or haven't tried to achieve what you have to your station yet. They're the only ones in the comments that are tearing you down. The people all above you that you aspire to, that are your peers, that want to be your friends, they're nowhere to be seen with the negativity. They either don't comment at all because they're busy doing shit and looking after, focusing on their North Star and where they need to go, or they're providing support and positivity. And that that I observed over the last 10 years of doing this myself has really helped me deal with criticism, comments and negativity in general that seeks to push other people down because it makes them feel better about themselves, but it's the wrong voices to listen to.
0: And you need to know why people do that because what people don't... If, you, if you're part of a group, um, what you have to do is that you have to operate by the rules of that group. And what people don't want you to do is when you break out of that group and if you're going on to try and attempt to be successful... It makes them feel bad and that's why they attack you it makes them feel bad because it indicates their own personal failings because if you've had the courage to break out and achieve and they haven't it's sending a message your success is sending to the message that person that they're a failure
1: it's very tribal isn't it it's like animal packs
0: yeah so it's in their interest for you to fail And so what you'll find is that Mm. you'll find you'll go through that period where people are desperate for you to fail in order to make their lives relevant. And then it's only when you then achieve great success, they will then come towards you to say, oh yes, we always knew you were gonna be well. They will then celebrate you. But for a long period of time, their interest is for you to fail, to make their life of value. That's what's sort of going on. And so you need to know that the moment that somebody's criticising, the moment somebody's being supportive, that's what's going on psychologically.
1: So what led... I got two questions here. Actually, I one at a time. Most important, I've been wanting to ask this since the first minute and you started talking. Um what about you, you growing up in a family of 11 people. What's so different about your mindset to those around you? Like this is sort of the classic nurture nature debate, right? Has uh, everyone in your in your family got the same mindset or did you find a way to break three for some reason?
0: No, so again, in terms of my family background is that I realised when I was a young kid that I was on society's dustbin heat. Being black in Britain at that time, uh, when there's a lot of racism, That you real, I realised very quickly that I was an outsider. That you're on your own, and that there was no help. There was, and I didn't want. I also realised that the suffering of my parents and my community. I did not want to be like these people. So I realised that if I was ever going to achieve anything that I wanted, a I would need to break out of this community, because they had nothing to offer me. And um, their lives was, was full of sadness. And to come to this country and to feel as though, you know, all the dreams they had seemed to be failing, then created an, an attitude. I thought I didn't want to be anything. I, I didn't want to be around that. So I realised very, very early on that if I was ever going to achieve anything, I was on my own. And I was an outsider. Now, what tends to happen with outsiders, they do one or two things. They either, you know, rebel because they hate the idea of being an outsider. They rebel, they end up in prison and they end up a failure. They want or they end up desperately trying to um, become part of the group uh, in order to be accepted. Or what I did is I recognize the power of being an outsider, recognizing that it's outsiders who bring change. And so rather than desperately trying to belong to a group I thought there is real power in being an outsider and that is what I've always done I've always held on to that as the the reason why um, I've gone and being entrepreneur embraced being an outsider everybody in a sense that you meet in life wants to be part of the pack want to be that's where the security is in being part of the pack you know It's pretty dangerous or courageous to get outside that pack and say, I'm going in that sort of direction.
1: So interestingly, you'd worked so hard to become part of a pack that you always set your sights on being in the BBC. And once again, you leave the pack. Talk to me a little bit about leaving that pack and what it's like to start off your, I guess the right uh, metaphor here would be Lone Wolf.
0: So it's quite interesting. So what I wanted is that I, the, the idea of belonging to any corporate institution is an anathema to me. And so I, there are some people who will work for a, a company or a business based on who the company is. It's a badge. They like to have that badge to their names because it gives them sort of credibility. Whereas actually, what I was interested in doing is making programs. So I don't like the idea that I would be seen, let's say, as a BBC person or a... Google person or a Facebook person. I hate the idea of that. So in any environment that I've ever found myself in, I've always been the lone wolf. And luckily, what I've managed to do is find people with that similar mindset um, who actually, the only reason why those people would have given me a break because there would have been something within their own nature that actually admired this guy being a bit of a rebel. And that's why I was then protected. They weren't probably as um, as much of an outsider as I was, but there was something within their personality that just thought, actually, I'll protect this guy. Because in the BBC, there's a lot of people who wanted to sack me or get rid of me because I was not playing by the rules. But what I managed to find were protectors. Just thought, you know, I could tell the stories of people that wanted me sacked and got rid of because I was not playing by the rules. I found the protectors. And so one of the things I say to people is find your guardian angels. Find your guardian angels because every single thing I have ever achieved in my life, somebody has gone out of their way to make it happen. And you will not find those people unless you're prepared to put it out there. You put it out there and the universe will provide.
1: Whilst he loved his work, Wilfred knew that at the BBC, he was never going to earn enough money to buy his farm. So in 1994, he left to set up his own marketing company. There's
0: a lot of people out there with ideas of things they would love to do. And the one thing that stops them doing that is fear. It's really fascinating fear that really stops people doing a lot of things. And our whole society is all structured around fear. If you look at everything, whether that's watching TV, the news, it's all about tapping into this one sensation in the human consciousness, which is fear. The whole world is about actually tapping into that one thing. And what is interesting for me is a bit like if you watch television, when I was in TV and you're doing a story... It was always where is the jeopardy? Where is the jeopardy? Where is that? Where where is the element in the story that's going to make people think, oh, but that that fear that you know something for the survival? And every construct of our society is based on getting that sort of moment. And in terms of being entrepreneurial, this is what people need to sort of recognize and remember. The only difference between an entrepreneur and everybody else is that actually we don't allow fear to determine what we do. It's not that we don't feel it. Everybody feels fear. It's about what you then allow fear to do. And then fear is used as the tool to gain power, to put people in line. It's to recognize that this fear is a construct. It's not real. It's about how you interpret it, how you absorb it. It's really, 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 really important that everybody understand that. Part of the entrepreneurial trick is, well, what do you do with fear? And uh, if people could understand that all they've got to do is work that out and the whole construct of our society is geared to touching that one sensation, you would then see the world differently. Every time you switch on the news, it's got to be something that's going to make people feel fucking fearful. When you're watching a drama, watching well, when you're watching a soap, anything, what reading a newspaper, it's all about tapping that one sensation. So I recognised that pretty early on. And I thought, right... Uh, The only way I'm going to earn money is if I leave the BBC. And again, a lot of people, because of this fear thing, well, I'm going to stay at the BBC because that's secure, that's certain. And the other thing I say in life is this. There's only one thing that is certain in life, and that is life is uncertain. So if you're prepared to live with uncertainty as as the rule, you don't think that certainty exists. So if you know that certainty doesn't exist, you could then, whatever you do doesn't matter because you're not basing your decision thinking that certain things are going to be certain. It's not like that. So I decided to leave the BBC, set up my own food and drink marketing agency. And I can remember just having enough money to pay my mortgage for three months, had no clients, just going. And then there's nothing more um, wonderful when you actually jump in, no safety, in the deep, deep end. You know, when people do that, they feel lifted. They feel free it's it, anybody who's ever done that would tell you how fantastic that feels. And then the thing is, how then do you keep sustaining that? You know, after that sort of first sensation, most people, it's a bit like people starting their own business. They love it. And then they're not prepared for the marathon of it. You know, it's, it's, easy, it's easy to jump, but then it's a marathon. you got to keep going and the discipline to keep going, keep going, keep going with all the shit that comes your way. And again, if you put it out there Good people come your way. And if you're putting it out there, this is what I want to do, these are the things, this is how I then got my clients. So we launched brands like Lloyd Gross and Sauces, Kettle Chips, Plymouth Gin, Cobra Beer, you know, brands that are big now, but back in the day, they were, you know, challenger brands and they saw that I was hungry. One of my you know great heroes, Steve Jobs, was saying, stay hungry. It's really important. Never feel full, stay hungry. And then I ran that business for 15 years and then that gave me the money to buy my farm. So one of the things I say to people is dream early because it takes a long time to fulfill your dreams. We live in this social media age where people think that actually the spikes of today is where they're going to become millionaires and how they're going to earn a living. And actually it isn't. It's it's all, I mean, being successful is about being able to run a marathon. It's as simple as that. If you keep going long enough, things will turn, things will come your way.
1: I think I was just going to say, I think this is why every successful entrepreneur ever has said it all just comes down to cash flow because it's about survival.
0: It is all about survival. And it is a street fight. It's absolutely um, a street fight. So you could have a fantastic idea is how tough you are in, in the fight. And everybody out there is trying to kill you.
1: Wow, in your space as well, you know, supermarket shelf space, et cetera, endless brands coming to market. I mean, there is a very good, like, realistic metaphor. A lot of my friends that run businesses like yours, I mean, that sounds one of the more tough spaces to be in for that. Very cutthroat.
0: It is. It is quite ruthless. And so um, I then bought my farm. And then when I bought my farm, you say, and this is one of the gifts about being an outsider, it's outsiders that see opportunity. Um, they see where there could be change. And I just thought there's this massive gap between urban and rural Britain. And actually, there's an opportunity to create a brand here that's going to try and bridge the gap. And what I've always believed is that when you're creating a brand, most people think it's about the product. It isn't. It's the biggest mistake that people make. You've got to have a great product, but that's not how you build a brand. It's about, what you know, I think, is it Simon Sinek that talks about your why? What is it the brand stands for? So I decided I wanted to, so that my whole purpose was that I wanted to create a brand that I was going to try and bridge the gap. I wanted to create a mainstream black brand, and I didn't want it to be an ethnic brand. So if you look at Levi Roots, it's an ethnic brand. I wanted it to be a quintessentially British brand. So I thought, well, what's British? I thought, everybody likes a sausage. So I thought, right, well, I find a manufacturer to to develop a sausage with me. Found that, and I wanted something that was going to be that was going to stand out, and and um, be all about what I'm trying to do. So um, I was thinking what to call this brand, and one day came to me. All of my next door neighbours used to call me the Black Farmer, and I thought, well, that's a pretty good brand name. Not only is it a very good brand name; it's got an edge to it because in in this society that we have where people are a bit nervous about what is the correct language to use when you're referring to people of colour. There's a nervousness. Still down in rural Britain, people still refer to you as coloured because they think it's more polite. And even I thought, actually, I better get this researched and tested. And this is a good lesson for everybody who believes in research. Um, All the research came back and said, do not call it the black farmer. And the lesson is this. They said, don't call it the black family because people will be upset. It's going to be controversial and all that. And the lesson is this. Research would tell you what people were thinking yesterday. Research could tell you what people are thinking today. But research cannot tell you what people are thinking tomorrow. And that's why you have to go with a vision, a vision that you have and that people will eventually follow. If you are going and making decisions based on what people are thinking today, you're never ahead of the curve.
1: I think I think one thing I would just say on your on your name and your point though it's interesting is um yeah it's you've got the racial undertones, which is an interesting um uh what am I trying to say here it's like an it's an interesting catch twenty two because um the majority of people that will tell you that it's uh, it's racist and not appropriate will be white people who feel uncomfortable about it, which will then come back to you, the black person who's like, this is my brand, this is my story, this is why the story connects with it and it gets people in this interesting tailspin, which in itself, creates a memorable moment, which is very important for brands. So that is essentially like how you stand out. And that stuff is important. And so long as you are the person who has the story connected to it and it creates a storytelling opportunity, it's kind of in itself, you know, a masterclass of opportunity.
0: Exactly. And so right it is. You're right. Because the people that would have ejected were white liberals. You know, how could you, you know, the idea that somebody is actually categorized by their color of their skin there's this debate about people who shouldn't well I am black you know I'm trying to create a brand that's going to stand out I could call it the Afro Caribbean farmer but it doesn't have a ring I don't have a problem about it you know if you have got a problem about it you know that ain't my sort of problem <clears throat> but but it was really interesting because when I did launch the brand and I you know did sausages and went on the bacon and, and this is where people's, it tells you a lot about where people's heads at because some people did report me to the racial equality and I gave them the argument that I've just given you. And I can remember one famous case where somebody wrote to the racial equality saying, because I had bacon and you know with bacon, horrible bacon, you got that white slimy bits on it. And my bacon was dry cured, didn't have any of it. And as part of our strap line, it was the black farmer, no white bits. And somebody thought it was referring to white people about actually that has been racist by calling it no white bits. So that tells you how people get really confused about actually the type of language that you should use. I can remember being, when I'm doing shows and listening to conversations between two people, I can remember one conversation, this woman's on the phone trying to give her friend instructions to where she's at. And she's saying, oh, I'm at the black farmer. And the friend next to her, oh they said you can't say that you know that's racist and there's and she's go well you can it says it there so there's real real confusion and it's that's what you need as a brand it's what I call that double take moment about well what's this for a lot of people don't even think it's a black person some people used to think it's a black country but that's what you need as a brand is that it's making especially in the early days making people work And that's what I, because I'm a marketeer, understanding that's really, really important. And the bigger story that I'm trying to tell.
1: Where are you trying to take the brand? Like, what does it look like in 10 years? What are you up to?
0: Well, what I want, I'm 65, I was 65 a week ago. And um, I would like it to be... Happy birthday. Don't look a day over 64. That's good. And then I want it to be an international brand. Um, um, and so we're, we're sort of launching in, in the in the US. And um, what, what I want really, I admire these brands um, like Apple um, and what they sort of stand for. Eventually, what happens is that these great brands become part of the mainstream, and they 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 lose that sort of entrepreneurial edge. I'm just really interested in a, a startup because there's fantastic freedom within startups. The money—the the moment the money men get involved, um, it is a totally different thing, really. And luckily, I still own my business 100%. Um, and you want to try and hold on to your business as long as you can, because you want to make your failures when it's your money, not somebody else's money. And um, also, I love helping other businesses, start up. I run something called The Hatchery. People come to me with ideas and if I like them and I like the ideas, then they could be part of the hatchery to help them develop their brand. So that's one of the things I'm really, really um, keen on doing. One of the other things I think a lot of entrepreneurs think you could do, you know, you can't be normal. You cannot have a normal life. And it's about, are you prepared to sacrifice the fact that you can't have a, a normal life? And it's about how, what, where do you prioritize things? My business is more important to me than anything. And everybody that works for me, my children know that, my wife knows that, everybody knows that it is it. And so once everybody knows that, then they decide whether they can work with that or not. Because when you're starting off um, a business, it's like a newborn child, and it has to have your absolute attention Everything else doesn't matter and everything else is sacrifice, especially within the first three, five years, to make sure that this child has a, 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 a chance of sort of survival. And if you don't have the right mindset, you know, and you, and you start making compromise, that's going to impact on, on this child's survival. That for me is really, really important for people to sort of understand.
1: What was your hardest day and what did you learn from it? What is my hardest day?
0: Well, when you have hard days and you, you know, rather than saying, what is my, heart? when you have hard days, I work on the basis that, you know, it gets light after midnight. You, you always get to that midnight hour in, in your business where you just don't know. And what you've got to do is to sort of, how could you since, um, help yourself We say that after midnight, the light comes up, it gets, it gets, it gets brighter. And that, that that has always sort of helped me out when you'd get really, you know, thinking, what the hell am I going to do? And then also to find out, well, there is no other option but to, to succeed. It's, there is no plan B. So that that's how I that's how I get through the the, the, the dark times.
1: Okay. I feel like you've got endless answers you've already given us for this, but you have to pick one. What is your top advice for entrepreneurs that want to? Well, your, your top advice for anyone that wants to take an entrepreneurial journey and wants to build a brand? The
0: most important piece of advice is never ever to chase money. People spend their time thinking it's about money. And that's the biggest mistake they make. Never chase money, chase success, get it right. Do the right position, chase success, because with success, money follows. Most people really spend far too much time working about the cost and the money. Bad, you'll fail. Chase success, get the product right, get the customer service right, get all of that, because money will
1: follow. Wilfred Emmanuel-Jones, founder and CEO of The Black Pharma, an excellent example of how your mindset really does influence your life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan murray Serta. This episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stollerman. We'll be back next week learning from the world's top entrepreneurs. See you next time.